You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Jennifer Egan is the author of The Keep, Manhattan Beach, A Visit from the Goon Squad, which won a Pulitzer Prize, and its sequel, The Candy House. She'll be appearing for Bookshop Santa Cruz on Wednesday, March 20th at 7 p.m. Thank you for joining me, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. You know, Jennifer, for me, one of the things that stood out about this book was the idea of externalizing your consciousness. Fiction externalizes our consciousness. And I think in an interesting, really interesting way, the subject of this book is in a sense a fiction, but we don't consider it fiction when we externalize our unconsciousness because we think that all that our consciousness records is reality. So it's like a video, you know, a documentary, not a story. Yeah, I mean, in a way, you know, the machine in the middle of this book, which, as you say, is called Own Your Unconscious and lets you externalize your consciousness so that you can review the whole of your life from a present day perspective and also lets you share it to a collective if you so choose um, and, and you gain access to that collective if you give that access in a way, you know, what, what does that even mean? Like, as you say, is, is consciousness a video recording of what we see? Of course not. You know, with my students at Penn once, um, a couple of years ago, I had them make a list of all the things that were in their, well, not all of them, but some of the things that were in their consciousness at a particular moment. Like I, I said, you know, what are you, and yeah, I quickly said, no, one's ever going to see this. Okay. This is just for you. Um, write down something that you're worrying about, something that you're looking forward to. Is there a piece of music looping through your mind? What is that? Uh, what's something that you remembered today? Just a, a, just a reminder of all of the, ele- the elements and the little fragments of perception that make up consciousness. So the idea that you can just re-experience that is already a little bit absurd when you look at it closely. <laughs> um, so, you know, the machine is a bit of a MacGuffin, uh, in fact, but the real machine, and I guess I do kind of land at this point at the end of the book, is really the novel, because that is the, the, the quote unquote machine that lets us have the experience of being inside another person's mind. Um, you know, a lot of the entertainment we consume nowadays doesn't do that because it's image-based. And if you're looking at an image of someone, you're looking at their outside. You are almost by definition in the opposite position. And, um, and you know, a lot of, of image-based entertainment give, tries to give the illusion that we're inside. But it's the very fact that, that you know, narrative fiction does not include an image and uses language, which is the stuff of, of thought and perception and, um, you know, and the way that we kind of uh, understand so much of our reality, the fact that fiction uses language to evoke internal life, I think, 
puts us as close as we can get to being inside someone else's consciousness. You know, that brings up to mind something that I was thinking today in that fiction is in a sense very much like a writing fiction, especially from the perspective of more than one character, whether it, no matter whether it's an omniscient or in first person, it's in a way like character acting in that you have to put yourself, but it's character acting in reverse because character acting, you read a script and then you try to become that person. In character act as writing, you become that person in your mind and then externalize that person's thoughts in the story. <laughs> and I, I think that, that that kind of um, exchange there, right there at the begin at the at the bumper point is where your fiction is so interesting because you're talking about that crossing that barrier back and forth with the technology you create. Well, that's what draws people to it is that, you know, the guy who invents own your unconscious, which is what this machine is called, uh, really did it to give people access to their own memories. Because of course, we don't remember, you know, probably 95% of what happens to us. I mean, I'm so frustrated sometimes when I realize that I'm trying to remember something, but I'm really going over the same couple of moments again and again, which are what I've retained from that thing. And sometimes those memories are connected to photos. We remember the things we have photos of. We're not really remembering the event. We're remembering the photo of the event. So anyway, he invents this machine to give people access to the rest of their memory banks. And that's why it's called Own Your Unconscious. But what ends up becoming so important it culturally, un, and this is not something the inventor expected, is the sharing portion. Because it turns out that what people want is not just to review their own lives. They want to see other people's lives from those other people's eyes. And they want to be seen and known. So obviously, in a certain way, this is a more exaggerated version of what we already have with the internet. But you know, it was very fun as a fiction writer to be able to let people solve mysteries, for example, using this machine. So, for example, there's a woman who is able to view a day in her father's life that happened when she was only six in 1965, when he went away on a weekend adventure with some business associates and came back sort of a different person. And she never knew what happened there. Well, using the machine, she is able to see that day through her father's eyes. And so we're both in her mind and in his mind. And, you know, on some level, our parents are such mysteries to us always, even if we know them well, there's no way to remove them from that mythical space that they occupy. And, and th this machine gives people the chance to be their parents in essence, to experience the world as their parents. You can easily imagine that this would be an appealing, it, it, with all of the problems that, that result, it would be hard to suppress one's curiosity to do some of this stuff. You know, you talked about how appealing this would be. And one of the things we find again and again in this book and in reality, and it's becoming more and more, uh, understood publicly understood is addiction uh 
a lot of your characters have problems with drug addiction and a lot of right now people have uh, problems with addiction to social media and, and but is it really it's not the program that they're addicted to it's the feeling that the program creates within them when they view it addiction is a personal inside experience and i think that one of the things that your books do is give us that kind of the the sukone of the addiction without the actual experience the need that is created by the addiction well in a way you know it's no surprise that people are addicted to social media or really all kinds of different things that their phones offer because the the smartest people in the world are being hired by the richest corporations in the world to keep us staring at these devices and not only are we succumbing to their will when we do it but we feel a sense of freedom and excitement and and a little cycle of of desire and rewards when we do it well that's that is i think almost the well i i'm not sure what the um the technical definition of addiction is but i think that 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 is certainly one component of it and if it is keeping us from things that we would rather be doing if it is if this cycle of desire and rewards is actually taking our time away from things that we know matter more that's the definition of a problem <laughs> but it's really tough because we're not even just dealing with a substance we're dealing with we're dealing with a uh, a strategy <laughs> we're dealing with a conspiracy to make us behave in this way so i think more and more it's going to be necessary for those who value deep reading and everyone should because there's a reason autocrats throw writers in jail deep reading encourages individual thinking complex thinking all kinds of things that make us smart and active citizens for people who value this kind of reading i think it's really important to recognize that it's kind it's a kind of resistance at this point you we are resisting very powerful forces who would like us not to do this kind of reading because it is costing them money you know every minute we spend engaging deeply with a text and not flittering around on our phone is costing them money it's worth thinking of it in those terms because it makes it a lot more palatable to put these machines aside and read deeply when i think we acknowledge what we're actually doing when we when we engage in that practice uh, reading is really the the best value for your money in terms of entertainment you buy a book it takes a while to read it also you have to do it it doesn't do it for you you can't just press a button and pull <laughs> and you know go duh it's important yeah it is important i mean it's i think not only is it a pleasure but it's a pleasure that requires a certain uh, mental fitness to engage in so if i haven't read for a while it can be a little hard at the very beginning to sort of get back to doing that it's like any kind of exercise you know if you if you slack off for a few days it's a little hard to get back into it and that's why i do think that the um that the the efforts of these very powerful tech corporations to make us 
stay riveted and moving around all the time um, are so dangerous because they're actually weakening our ability to engage in that deep way, um, rewarding us in shallow ways for moving around constantly and quote unquote engaging um, and, and costing us a sort of contemplative and quiet intellectual space that again, and I know this from my time as president of PEN America in part, you know, in, in the domains of dictators, this private mental contemplation is exactly what they don't want people to have. <laughs> it's what lets people think independently and, and engage with points of view other than their own. All the things that make us smart citizens and voters and make us question authority. That all happens in this kind of deep contemplation. And that's made more difficult when they try to ban books. Well, yes, that is that is another problem. I mean, that's exactly the sort of behavior that autocrats engage in. <laughs> we don't want you to think this way. We want to control your thoughts. We will not let you read this. And the next step, which thank God doesn't happen here, but you know, if certain people had their way, maybe it would, the next step is we're putting the writer in prison because just banning the book isn't enough to silence them. Or if you want to get really extreme, someone like Jamal Khashoggi, we're actually going to execute him to silence him forever. I mean, that's that's where all of this thinking leads. How can we silence writers that who encourage thinking we don't want to see encouraged? That's, that's frightening. And it's a, shockingly short distance between the two, isn't it? Well, it's a difference of degree that becomes a difference of kind. Um, so I don't think we're, you know, in in the realm of writers being executed at all. Um, thank God, you know, we we have lived in a democracy for a very long time in this country. I think that's one reason we tend to worry about whether we're reading enough. And reading feels like almost a sort of endangered luxury here or or frivolity whereas in countries ruled by autocrats it is seen as an act of um a, an act of of power and independence to be able to read freely um so i i think it's you know we we take our freedoms for granted and it's it's really worth remembering that it is a privilege to actually be able to read deeply and freely, and the privilege that is not allowed in many parts of the world. Well, too, reading is such an individual activity that it is literally impossible for anybody to, once you are engaged in the act of reading, nobody can change your mind that the way a book does, because it, it you are part of that act, creative act, that you as the reader have to read the words, you have to put them together. And, and as you said, one thing that I've noticed is the more you read, the more you enjoy reading. I mean, it's uh, I've been reading a, a lot more really faster and, and more intensely of late, and, and I've just find that it's really fun and in, enjoyable. It's a great escape. I will say, you know, it's hard because we are really um, at this point somewhat uh, not just drawn to our devices for the nefarious reasons that I mentioned, but very dependent on them for all kinds of reasons. And one thing that I think is great is the way that 
there are ways to read using these devices that also really constitute deep reading. And one that I would point to is audiobooks. I think that I have increased the amount that I read by maybe four times using audiobooks because I basically listen to books all the time, unless I'm, you know, I, 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 I do it while I'm cooking, gardening, walking, waiting for the subway. You know, I'm always listening to a narrative and audio also really lends itself to some, you know, long 19th and 18th century classics that are really, first of all, hard to even get sometimes and very burdensome to carry very small print, which now is a factor for me sometimes. Um, and so I listen to books a lot and I rewind constantly. So I'm always um, I, I find myself and I take lots of notes on quotations and often I also have the physical books. So I go back and forth. So the machines are not always a disaster. Audiobooks are a growing part of the market. I, I think an exploding part. It's not that's not going too far. And I'm a huge believer in it. I'm Rick Cleffel, host of Narrative Species for Talk of the Bay on a special edition. My guest is Jennifer Egan. Her new novel is The Candy House. She'll be appearing for Bookshop Santa Cruz on Wednesday, March 15th at 7 p.m. We'll be back in a moment. This is Rick Cleffel for Talk of the Bay. One of the things that, that struck me uh, about the way th this book in particular operates is the kind of pleasures that that it offers are, are pleasures that the only readers can experience when you put together oh this character came from here and now it's his daughter who's telling her story about him and that kind of thing can only happen in a in a, in a reading experience it will not happen in other experiences and, and that kind of the participation of the reader, I think, is not well understood and much underestimated in terms of reading. More often, you'll see people say, oh, this content of this book is dangerous. No, what's dangerous are the thoughts the readers experience while reading the book. Yeah, maybe so. Although I will say that, you know, some of my inspiration for structuring The Candy House and A Visit from the Goon Squad, which is its sibling volume, in the way that I do... I think some of that comes from an interest in the storytelling principles of serialization. And, you know, the, the original serializ serialization of narrative was 19th century fiction, you know, big books by Dickens, George Eliot, uh, you know, Thackeray, the, these books were all serialized and appeared in magazines and readers, all of the, the you know, excitement that, that we as a culture now have for TV, this was all directed at this, these periodicals where you could get a new installment every week or whatever it was. And serialization brings along some storytelling qualities that I think are really fun. Now, we tend to see those now in TV, but I don't actually watch TV very, TV very much. So I was interested in bringing those back into fiction. And they are just what you're saying. Loose connections among people that you may or may not even get right away a big narrative arc that is not always obvious in each individual part. You know, if you watch a particular episode of a television show, you may not even be thinking about what the season's story is. You're just there 
for that story, smaller story that you're watching. Um, and and the way that characters can go in and out of focus in a series, whether it's fiction or TV, you know, one one at one point someone is a major character, then at another point they're just a minor character. All of that really really interested me. So I'm a believer in using whatever I can find in the culture around me and trying to bring it into fiction and make my fiction alive. And uh, and TV was an influence, especially for a visit from the Goon Squad and, and thinking about why serialized storytelling is so fun. You know, one of the things that often happens is when a new technology is invented, it's seen as instantly making older technologies outdated. If, you know, if newspapers are going to just doom books, radio's going to doom newspapers. TV is going to doom radio. Movies will will spoil them all. The internet is going to ruin the whole shebang and send everybody else to hell. But people are still writing novels. And if you look at, you know, the stacks of stuff that's bubbling up by people who aren't published by regular publishers anymore, it's becoming even more common. So talk about the influence of technology in terms of the way you write your books? Well, I don't think it's had any influence on the, the method that I use, which is very untechnological. So I write fiction by hand. I'm, I'm even before the typewriter. Um, I do that for very specific reasons. And I, and I, I, for example, as a journalist, I write almost entirely on a computer. So it's not that I can't write on a computer. I do it all the time. The reason I use handwriting for fiction is that I find that the stories I come up with staring at a screen uh, don't unfold in interesting ways. I, I really like to access my unconscious for my first drafts. And for me, handwriting, which by which I mean cursive, which in and of itself is sort of a dying practice, cursive is a very meditative act writing in cursive everything flows together even though it's totally illegible in my case um and it's a little bit blind you know if i'm looking at letters on a screen i am seeing what i'm writing i am criticizing it and i'm fixing it almost immediately but for me with fiction i want to get out ahead of that critical part of me and really improvise. I guess the, I think that really is the best analogy. You know, if you think about comic co comedy, improv comedy, people don't say, wait a minute, let's start over. I didn't like what you just said. No, the whole point is you lean into a line of action and everyone goes with it. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. When it's good, it's really hilarious. And part of what makes it hilarious is that no one knows what's coming. It's really spontaneous. And the audience is part of that too. So. I'm looking for that spontaneity and that discovery on the page. And I can't get it any other way than through handwriting. Obviously, I use computers as typing machines, but I tend to edit by hand on hard copies. I think that the way that technology has influenced my writing is much more in terms of subject matter, because I am fascinated by the ways that technology interacts with people's lives. I mean, we were just talking about you know, um, how social media can be addictive. And that all sounds kind of judgmental. And, and I feel a little judgmental about this stuff sometimes, but in I don't think you would ever know that reading my fiction. 
fiction is for me, not a place to make judgments, not a place to answer questions, give advice or teach lessons. It is a place to ask questions. It is a place to explore and watch ideas play out in life. So from a, from a writing standpoint, you know, the constant technological change is a gift to me because it's just constantly giving me new ideas and new possibilities. I've written in power, I've written narrative fiction in PowerPoint. I wrote it for Twitter at 140 characters. There's a chapter in the Candy House that's all in the form of like emails and texts. You know, this is fun. These are ideas that are coming directly from the world of tech into my work. And I am very happy to steal them and will continue to do so. You know, one of the things I love about all the stories in these novels is that they're um, the way you uh, deal with time. Uh, I, when we move around the world, we can move in forward, backward, sideways, fall up, fall down, however. We all are, as far as we know, we see ourselves as kind of being marched through time, having no control whatsoever. And yet we're constantly exercising control when we're talking in the present, but thinking about the past, worrying about the future, thinking about, you know, the alternate thing. Oh, what if I'd done this here? And what if I'd done that there? We exist in a more time zones than we're really aware of. That's true. Absolutely. I mean, that's another, you know, a way of acknowledging the complexity of consciousness. You know, our minds are really so complicated and powerful and capable of operating on so many tracks at once. And certain kinds of storytelling, I think, don't benefit from, um, from chronology. And The Candy House and The Visit from the Goon Squad do not move in chronological order Partly because they are books that are really built around curiosity. The fun of reading them is you see something from the corner of your eye that looks sort of interesting, and then boom, in the next chapter, you're just plunged right into the middle of that. So my priority is what will be the most fun thing for the reader to read? And if I have to wait for that event to appear in chronological order, I'm just allowing that surprise for the reader and that pleasure to be undermined. Certain books, I think, do need to be more chronological. Like my last novel, Manhattan Beach, which is a kind of a historical noirish thriller, that really does move mostly in chronological order. There are leaps, but we don't tend to go, you know, backward, forward, and and all over the place in the way we do in Goon Squad and the Candy House. So again, you know, for me. The question always with these choices is, what do you gain and what do you lose? What I gain from getting rid of chronology is a lot of, of perspectives that are, are fun that I couldn't have otherwise. For example, what is it like to read a story when you already know the future of everyone in it? There's a very different perspective the reader brings in that situation. Sometimes it's fun to read because we want to know what's going to happen. But sometimes it's also fun to read because we know what's going to happen and the characters don't. So they're just, I, I enjoy that flexibility in certain books and The Candy House is definitely one of those. You know, too, this makes me think of one of my favorite things, A Theory of Mind. 
where that's our inclination right now. I'm wondering, what is Jennifer Egan thinking about this stupid quiet action? <laughs> and then maybe how is she thinking about my stupid question? And how is she thinking about, how am I thinking about how is she thinking about how <laughs> my stupid question? <laughs> and I think that um, with fiction, the way you use it and just the the general nature of that beast is it puts us in other people's minds in a way that is inevitable. So we are there and we're thinking those thoughts whether we would or not. I mean, it's the it's one of the facts of human life that we really are locked in solitude inside our own consciousness. I mean, no matter how well you know someone or are known by them, none of us can cross that barrier. And so it's it's really, um, I, I, it's a little like a superpower to be able to do that. You know, it's like being able to fly or be invisible or one of those things that, that we all kind of wish for. So it was very fun in this book to imagine a world in which we can do that. So for example, there's a, a guy who's had a terrible, um, he had a, a terrible drug habit, which resulted in basically his whole life being destroyed. And he's living kind of a marginal existence working at a methadone clinic. And he's, fascinated by this guy who used to sell him drugs years and years before. He doesn't know enough about this guy to even find him on social media. He knows his first name, if that even was his first name. So using this machine, Own Your Unconscious, he can share his specific memories of this guy named Damon to this to the collective consciousness where all everyone who has shared their internal lives, this is where all that material is kind of swirling. Then with facial recognition, the program seizes little glints of other people's memories that include the same face as the guy our character is remembering. And he's able through fragments of anonymous other memories to see glimpses of this guy's life starting in childhood, going through college and ending in orange at a penitentiary. So like, that's just an exciting idea to me. Like, I will sometimes think, wow, I remember I walked by that stoop and I had that nice, like, brief exchange with this woman. I have no idea what her name even is. Who was she and where is she now? So wouldn't it be fun to be able to find out? <laughs> and so that's the kind of thing that led, I think, to my envisioning this machine, although it came about very organically and sort of I, I wasn't really planning on it, but it, it sort of emerged in the material itself. But it 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 satisfied a lot of my own curiosity about what is inside other people's minds. And I feel that curiosity all the time. I'm Rick Cleffel, host of Narrative Species for Talk of the Bay on a special edition. My guest is Jennifer Egan. Her new novel is The Candy House. She'll be appearing for Bookshop Santa Cruz on Wednesday, March 15th at 7 p.m. We'll be back in a moment. This is Rick Cleffel for Talk of the Bay. You know, you're talking about one of the things I love about uh, literature that includes elements of the fantastic, which is the way that you can use those elements be they technological or supernatural or whatever, to externalize 
the thoughts within your characters are your own thoughts that and then to move those about in the plot so that the things you're worried about or or you can't talk about or your characters can't talk about become plot elements and you can move them around and have them fight with each other and do all sorts of interesting things without without ever like getting up and lecturing and saying these two things are destined to fight because each of blah 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 you don't have to do that you just get to see it and experience it from within yeah it's interesting i think you know one of the first chapter actually the first chapter that i worked on of this book is in a way the most structurally unusual um it's called lulu the spy 2032 and I started working on this while on my book tour for A Visit for the Goon Squad. It involves a minor character from Goon Squad. A lot of people don't really have any impression of her. She's sort of a little bit opaque and hard to read. She's working as a spy for the US government and she's narrating her mission in the form of what she learns from each step she takes. And so it's sort of told in the, in the second person. It's like, you do this, you do that. Um, and what was what became clear as I worked on this is that she is narrating her mission via something that's been implanted in her brain that lets her telegraph her thoughts as a kind of record of the actions that she takes. And so there were so many things that became that that I sort of had to work with as a result of that. I mean, as you say, you know, it, it, a lot of different things end up coming into play because we can directly experience what's inside her mind. For example, she her, often gets lessons from her training as a spy, sort of gets scrambled up with some of these observations that she's making. And then her own memories start to also intervene. And she narrates those also as lessons because she's been told to do that. So just having access to the contents of her mind in this kind of raw form lets us see all of these contradictory things at work. And that was really fun as a writer. And I, and, you know, because it's a genre-esque spy story, you know, the genre itself gave me a lot to work with. There's so much atmosphere around a spy story. Um, and I, in a way, using that genre helped me to sort of lodge this very kind of out there narrative approach in a pretty recognizable set of conventions that that most readers will feel familiar with and and be kind of settled in and and um and hopefully find fun you know it really is fun and this uh what you are saying this uh, is really interesting to me so you actually work on new fiction when you're on tour well, that was sort of a, a not, I mean, not always and not always successfully, but for some reason I had, I was pretty locked in with that story. Um, not, not when, when Goon Squad first came out, but just a few months later, the reason I know this is because I write my first drafts by hand and I date them. So I know exactly when I started something and um, and this so this would have been the fall of 2010 after Goon Squad came out. And I also remember that like I was at the Texas Book Festival and I didn't really know many people there. So I went out to dinner by myself to a Mexican restaurant and I was dropping guacamole all over my notebook as I was working on the story. So I have like grease stains. It becomes a physical artifact of that tour. And, you know, I should mention that on my website, I've really tried to 
let the reader see, since I do have all these physical artifacts of my writing process, I've tried to open it up so that the reader can look at the first page of each chapter as published. And then if you click on the first paragraph, that vanishes and you're looking at a marked up manuscript of that same paragraph. And then if you click again, that vanishes and you're looking at my first draft on yellow legal paper. And in some cases where I had false starts, you can keep going, moving down, excavating through these physical layers of the writing process. Wow, that's really fascinating. You know, it's that, so cool. <laughs> it strikes me that that in itself is a sort of performance art. I, I mean, it's a, it, it is in fact a performance. And I was thinking about, you know, they're, they're always saying that this is the novel of the future. This is the writing form of the future. And I was thinking that, you know, your, your work is reaching towards that, towards using all the elements of the of fiction and the novel as a form and the short story too as a form to create something that includes all those elements but the sum of those elements is more than or at least certainly not of those elements something new i mean that's the hope you know if if, if i mean if fiction can't engage meaningfully with our technological moment or our, our culture as we experience it there's a danger that it stops being relevant. You know, we want to feel that what we're reading relates to the world we live in, even if it's historical fiction. I mean, the website, I take no credit because I have no, I, I didn't program this thing. I can barely operate it. But for each book, I've worked with uh, two collaborators, um, a guy named Spencer Hansen um, at a company called Simple Thread and a guy named um, Noah Scalin. And his company is Another Limited Rebellion. And they create works of art. We brainstorm together and they have created amazing works of art, starting with um, A Visit from the Goon Squad. And that website is archived within the larger website. Then Manhattan Beach, where they let you go underwater and see all these artifacts and photos from my research. It's crazy. Also archived. And now this new one where... You start with a piece of graph paper because there's a lot about gaming in the book and role-playing games. And then you can click on these images of the finished first page of each chapter and, and dig down through them. And I also, there are certain parts that are highlighted in that, those first pages that will immediately transport you. They're like portals. They transport you into the Goon Squad website to chapters that are related to these candy house chapters. So I just figured why not create a meaningful interactive work of art that is ancillary to the book, but, but actually gives the reader information that they wouldn't have otherwise. And a different artistic aesthetic experience, but still informative, informed by the reading experience. So it, it's like taking the reading experience and making it slightly transparent and sh shining a light through it and then looking up what's projected on the wall. And also the writing experience, because I think so many people, you know, when a book is published, I even feel this, it has this sort of weird, iconic quality. You kind of can't believe a person wrote it. And I found this really frightening after Goon Squad had all this good luck and won prizes. And I suddenly felt like, oh my God, I don't even know how to write. I can't write a book. 
And then I would look at that book and think, yeah, but you wrote that. And then I thought, no, I didn't. That was someone else. I felt like I couldn't even remember what it felt like to write that book. And so for me to show the reader how chaotically all of this unfolds and how haphazardly, you know, for example, there's a chapter called See Below, which is all emails and texts. And it's pretty funny. It's a, you know, you're, you're watching everyone's self-interest play out and, and, you know, sort of collide in a, in a wild series of exchanges that kind of gathers momentum as, as it goes on. But that was a really hard one chapter. I had a lot of false starts because the real goal of the chapter was to see Lulu the spy after her spy mission is over. You know, during her spy mission, we're in a spy genre. So we're not, our attention is not really on the fact that she is being, you know, physically abused, raped, shot. Like she goes through horrible things, but I don't, and we know that it's not like that's being hidden, but it's not the focus. Just as in a murder mystery, the focus is not on grieving and how much, how deeply death affects the people who love someone. If that, if you try to do all of that in a murder mystery, it would not satisfy the conventions of the genre. The murder mystery is about who did it. So I, I knew though, that if I was going to include Lulu the Spy, that chapter in a book, I would have to contend with the aftermath of her mission without a genre to cloak myself in. And I would have to really reckon with the damage of those events because I don't want to be making light of that. So I tried all kinds of things that didn't work. And you can read back through those efforts on jenniferegan.com. Find the chapter that's Lulu the Spy. If you hover over the little smudges on the graph paper, that will show you which chapter you're looking at. You will go back and see that I tried therapy notes from a therapist Lulu is seeing. I tried having Lulu narrate her daily life as a mother in the same little Twitter length utterances that she narrates her spy mission. That didn't work. So I'm, I am happy to reassure anyone that a messy process of trial and error can still lead to material that ultimately works. And this is the antithesis of, in a sense, what is uh, the universal antagonist right now, the algorithm. An algorithm is not messy. It's not chaotic. It may seem that way, but it, it's ultimately a, a simple equation. Yeah, I mean, are you, are you talking about like chat GPT, something like that? Yeah, and just the, the way social media works is it, it are all the algorithms. We're going to show you what you like and you'll like it more and then you'll watch it more. And there's, you know, it's a feedback loop. Well, they're kind of right. I mean, those algorithms do accomplish what they want them to accomplish, which is that they keep people watching. Um, you know, what I'm trying to do is something very different. Although, funnily, you know, there there is a chapter in, in the Candy House that it, it, it sort of suggests ChatGBT, which I still haven't even tried and, and had never heard of, obviously, as I was working on the book. But there's a character named Chris Salazar who is trying to, his job, he works for a tech company. He's not sure why he's being told to do this, but his job is to 
create algebraic equations out of every um, convention and trope he can find in contemporary movies, television, and novels. He's supposed to turn action into algebra. And the idea is ultimately we begin to get the sense that this company wants to take all of these equations and just spew out entertainment using all of Chris's mathematics. Um, and, you know, it's a comic chapter in large part because he starts to narrate his own experience in algebraic equations. Um, so I guess what I find myself thinking when I think about algorithms is how can I use them to write fiction that's interesting? Um, even though I fully recognize that, you know, they are the, I, the addictive quality of them, I think is very, uh, you know, a bit nefarious. And I, I try to resist them as much as I can. On the other hand, I'm technically a baby boomer. So I'm, of course, going to have an easy time, easier time resisting these because I didn't encounter, you know, I, I was already a full fledged adult by the time the Internet even came along. I'm Rick Cleffel host of Narrative Species for Talk of the Bay on a special edition. My guest is Jennifer Egan. Her new novel is The Candy House. She'll be appearing for Bookshop Santa Cruz on Wednesday, March 15th at 7 p.m. We'll be back in a moment. This is Rick Cleffel for Talk of the Bay. You know, one of the things that I think is really interesting about your books is your sense of the feeling of the future, which is that, you know, the, we always think the future is going to be really different. It's going to be, you know, uh, something spectacular or really weird. But, you know, the future is just like today, only slightly worse. Well, I don't know if I would agree with that, actually. I mean, I think I think we have an idea that everything is getting worse, but, you know, I, I'm not sure I agree with that. You know, I mean, we have antibiotics. So, you know, if you go to a graveyard and you look at, you know, uh, at what age women were dying at, for example, before World War II, and certainly in the 19th century, you see a lot of women dying in their, you know, early 20s, and that was childbirth. Um, lack of antibiotics, lots and lots of children in graveyards. You know, we, I mean, I'm not saying that everything is perfect, but I think it's very easy to fall into a notion that things have never been worse because we are so inundated with the ways in which things are bad. And I say this as someone who is terrified of the climate crisis. Don't get me wrong. There, I, no amount of hysteria would be an exaggeration of how seriously I take that. And yet, you know, the Holocaust happened. Is now worse than that? Absolutely no way. Okay. No, it's not. It's just verifiably not. So I'm very wary of this narrative that everything is getting worse. I feel like it's a, it's, there's, there are huge problems to be dealt with. But I think that that, that narrative is actually, um, it, it, it leads to uh, despair and a kind of inertia, which is not helpful. I think human beings are so ingenious. If we put our minds to things, we can solve many, many problems. And I think sometimes what, what is new, what is more intense than ever before, 
is the degree to which we are aware of the way in which things are bad. That is new because we've never been inundated with this amount of information before. I mean, if you think about it, during World War II, during the Holocaust, people were reading the newspaper and they were listening to the radio. Those were the only two ways they could get information or watching little films in movie theaters that that showed them imagery of things that had happened um, overseas. You know, there there were no televisions for for almost completely. So it's really important to remember that our perception is a big part of what makes our situation seem so much so dire um, and and so uh, doomed. I, I I'm not sure I agree with it. Well, you know that that's true. One of the things I often think, you know, if you watch the news, you'll see you know, a traffic accident happened halfway across the nation. Oh my gosh! You, Twenty years ago, I wouldn't either have known about that or cared about that, and it wouldn't have made one whit of difference in my life. And so, why do I need to know that now? Exactly. I mean, I think it's just really important to remember what the agenda of the purveyor of the information is. That keeping that in mind, that if it's social media, the agenda is to keep you engaged. In fact, everyone's agenda is to keep you engaged. The only way to keep you engaged is to keep throwing new stuff at you. And the more outrageous, the better. And it's been well-documented that anger and, and you know fear are much more engaging emotions than like feeling good. <laughs> So it, the the you know some of this um, some of this information tends toward the negative because again of the agenda of the purveyor of it the the goal is to keep us watching and I just think it's so important to remember that that you know you're not slacking off by putting your phone away for three or four hours and just sitting down and reading a book the world is not going to end because you're not watching your push notifications you know what. What you're saying is essentially exactly what a writer would and should say, which is that every for every story you hear, remember it's not inf raw information; it's a story. There's a storyteller; they have they have a reason for telling you that story. Absolutely, and it's not to say don't engage with current events. I don't feel that at all, but I think it's just worth. Thinking, I mean, what I try to do, and again, this is very personal, and I would, I'm in no position to judge or advise anyone on this. But I often think, what am I? What am I? How is this making me feel? What am I really accomplishing here? As you say, if I'm reading about a murder that happened in in some other part of the country eight years ago and has just been solved, and it's upsetting me. Why? Why am I reading that? Or here's a more visceral example. I used to go to my Amazon page and look at how my books were doing on Amazon. I would read reviews by readers and I would start flipping out because of course, a lot of them are negative. And of course, one's stature is going up and down in the numbers and other people are doing better. And I, it was actually a revelation from therapy where my therapist said, why do you look? And I said, well, I, I want to know what's happening. And he said, but what is, what is that, what, how are you, how does that help you to improve your situation? And the answer was that information was purely destructive. It gave me nothing helpful. 
and it was ruining my day. So I made a rule with myself years ago, no more Amazon. I do not ever check rankings. I do not ever read reviews because these readers are exchanging information with each other. They're not putting that up there for me to read. I'm not the audience. So I, I think some kind of self-regulation can be so freeing and, and so reassuring in a way. Well, at the, and that's the polar opposite of going on a book tour where you're talking to people who like your books or like reading at the very, very least and want to hear from the author and want to be there to say, yes, I read that book. And I think that that's an interesting, you know, social aspect of writing that is now made more popular by technology. You know, Zoom, you can talk to many, many people. You, your website allows you to reach directly into the hearts of people and let people explore the way you create. Well, I, I love going on book tours because I feel, you know, as you say, writing is very solitary, although I do have a writing group that I work with and actually dedicated the candy house to. So I use feedback all, all the way through to make sure I'm, you know, to try and do a good job. But the bottom line is I, readers are my people, when, wherever I go, if I need someone who reads, that's the person I'm interested in knowing because we already have something enormous in common and something that in some ways is, is less and less to be taken for granted in our culture. So for me to go on a book tour and meet people who care about reading is just a gift. And to, to have a period where I can interact with my readers is, is really a joy. So I, I love that part of it. Um, you know, it's meant a lot to me over the years as a fan of writers to have a chance sometimes to meet them. Um, and and I love to uh, I love to have a chance to meet my readers. Are you partway through your new book yet? I'm working on a couple of things, um, and I hope that they will both ultimately be books. <laughs> but one thing about my strange, blind improvisational method is that, there's always the question of whether it will actually work. You know, it's, it's a, I can't, I don't have, it's usually not until after I have a first draft and can really say, okay, this is what I think it will be. And this is what I need to do to get it there that I feel confident. Yes, there will be a book, but for me, until I finished the first draft, I don't know what's going to happen in a book or whether it will make sense or work. So I have two projects that I'm hopeful about but I do not have the confidence to say for sure that they will be books. Well, I do have the confidence to say that you're going to have many happy audiences to see you on your current book tour. I've been speaking with Jennifer Egan. Her new book is The Candy House. Thank you for joining me, Jennifer. It was a joy. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.